Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm delighted today to have Nikki Williams with me. Welcome, Nikki. Hi. <laughs> and I just wanted to begin on a really sort of lovely note, play a recording of your, your dad, Heffern, singing. Give me the background to that song and what it means to you. We got him recording for his 70th birthday. So I'm just grateful that we've got memories and we've captured that really. So he was, um, he liked to sing. <laughs> yeah, any party or any opportunity that he, he had to get up. That was one of his songs that he did like to sing, but he used to do Tom Jones quite a lot as well. Delilah. <laughs> Your dad was a Welshman, correct? He was from a little village called Eden. The Welsh were very proud of singing. He sang being brought up. Mum was very much in, in with the church and things and she used to play the organ and sing as well in, in church and and I think that's where he's just, that's his roots. He's just been brought up like that. So he, he very much liked the opportunity to get up and sing whenever he could, really. And he used to sing in Welsh as well, did he? He did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he used to be very proud singing um, the Welsh national, national anthem. As children, we used to cringe, think, oh, God, Dad's up again, you know. And Whereas as adults, and even now, we're, you know, we are very proud, very, very proud of him. We've got lots of little snippets of video of him singing at different events, you know, um, any parties, just get up, yeah. He'd, he'd be on the dance floor, so he used to like singing and dancing, and my mum loved to dance, so my mum was always the first one on the dance floor, and the two of them, you know, used to dance fantastically, yeah, everybody used to... The phones had come out, you know, and video them. So we've got lots of footage of them dancing. What was the particular dance? Rock and roll, they like, like to do um, quite a lot. And the fact we've got a video of them, actually. And they won a competition when they went to, oh, I'm trying to think now where it was. I want to say Barbados or Jamaica. Jamaica. Jamaica it was. They'd gone to a wedding there. And in the hotel there, they'd got up and there was a few couple of people up there doing a dance and they actually want so yeah it was, they sound like party people yeah and... par- party people but very caring they were foster parents my mum and dad as well come on to that I mean in the photos that you've shared they seem incredibly close a very, very. couple and yeah. your mother always smiling really lovely images so your dad a big singer so he must have been absolutely thrilled when you got him a studio where he could yeah 
do an actual recording. Yeah, yeah, it was it was lovely, and we were all there, all the you know family. So we made it a day of it. You know, we went for breakfast and then went to the recording studio, and 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 he enjoyed it as well. I think you know he was very proud. He had his CDs and he'd take them to his relatives because he's got lots of cousins. Mum and dad were both only children, but they had both of them have got cousins. So dad would you know he'd be really proud taking his CD to his friends and to his cousins in Wales and you know, sharing it and, and they've got copies and things now. So it's it's really good for them to have. So tell me a bit about the trajectory of, of his life. So born in Wales, some point to, to Warrington. To Liverpool, yeah. Mum and dad met in Wales because mum used to go holidaying in Wales. So they met actually in a little, in a pub in Eden called the ship in and they how met they, there. How did they get together? They got together, they just got chatting and within... I think it was about six weeks they actually got engaged um yeah they were writing to each other and then actually dad moved and came and stayed with um my mum and her mum at the time because they lived in Liverpool in in Highton and my dad moved in with them for a time um until then they got married and then moved to St Helens where they then had me and then dad got a job in Warrington and was able to get a house then because with you know with the job um so then that's when they moved to Warrington and settled in Warrington then had my sister Andrea my brother Mark that's where 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 they were then for the next 40 48 years yeah wonderful and you said that they fostered also yeah they fostered for I think it was about a period of five years and in that five years they'd fostered about 26 children then the last child we actually adopted so is now my sister so oh, younger sister Sarah so she's yeah so there's actually four of us now that was that, that that's what they did they're just very very caring when they finished fostering mum then became a carer in the community um, and dad was working at uh, Manchester Airport where he worked for many, many years before he retired. And then when he did retire, he took a job in Asda as a meter and greeter. So he used to, and he was always the one there that would help, you know, anybody who had a screaming child in the trolley or, you know, somebody, you know, that he, he was always the first one there to help or to take a trolley to the car, you know, for to help mums, young mums and things like that. And he'd always have the, at the time, they used to have little tokens that they could give to the children that could go and get them some sweets or whatever. So he was known for that. That's how he became more known sort of in the local community is through Asda. And then from there, then he went on to become a volunteer on the front desk of the local hospital. What was that local hospital? At Warrington Hospital. So they were both people in the community, known in the community. Yeah. Very much loved. Yeah. They used to attend Eagle Sports Club, which was their local uh, social club. So they'd go to quite a lot of events there. They were, you know, that's where they socialised, had lots of friends. Yeah, so they were known. So when they passed, it was for a lot of people. You've mentioned that, you know, your mum, um, there's a song that makes you think of your mum and it Ed Sheeran's Supermarket Flowers. But that's mm. that's not a song that, that you can listen to, is that right? No, I still no. can't listen to that now. Okay. We've had we, we played it at Mum's funeral. It's the only one that really sort of still gets to me. I try to, to sort of steer clear of it a bit. You know, the last three years and more have been incredibly difficult for you and your family so you know your wonderful parents Heffern and Valerie they were admitted to hospital one after the other they were in beds just 10 meters apart and then they died within 11 days of each other enormous loss catastrophic loss if it's okay would you be able to just bring us back to
to the time before they fell ill? What was life like? What was happening in the Williams family? Just before the pandemic started, had an amazing Christmas, not realising that that was going to be our last Christmas. It's so amazing. Just because mum and dad, they were the epitome. They were the centre of our lives. It was the hub where we got together, you know, as siblings. So we've all got, so myself, Andrea and Mark have all got two children. So that's where we would congregate. The kids used to love going around there. If they needed somebody to talk to, that was their go-to. Christmases, we always congregated at mum and dad. So it was just lovely. The children, you know, they thrived through all that. been difficult because we've not got that hub anymore. Before that as well, the beginning of March, it was my daughter's birthday and she was also in a show she likes to do performing like her granddad very yes I bet she doesn't take after me anyway <laughs> I didn't inherit those genes <laughs> and she was actually performing and had a little solo part singing take your time it was touch and go as to whether the show would go on you know with the pandemic becoming apparent then and things were starting to you know get cancelled and anyway the show did go on mum and dad came and they were so proud I've actually got a clip of them doing a a review of the show afterwards and that's the very last video I've actually got of them they were just so proud and I'm just glad that they got the opportunity to see her to have her little moment on stage yeah so that show will always hold it was called Battle of Boat and that'll always be very very precious fond memories and wonderful for your daughter to have yeah yeah it 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 did have a bit of a knock-on effect actually though because she sort of took a step back after that and it's been quite difficult for the kids really because they they were her biggest supporters you know in, in what she did and it did have an effect on her really and her going on to perform so she ended up not going back to that actual production company which was quite sad but I can understand those reasons why as well she has continued to to do performing and she did do another show just just recently the earlier on just before Christmas, which she got a lead part in. Uh, and it was quite it was quite emotional, really, you know, knowing that her biggest supporters weren't there. But I just said they'll be there in spirit, you know. And, yeah, she did she did it justice. So, <laughs> yeah, so she did get back up eventually. Brilliant. Good on her. So a lovely Christmas, this mm. lovely performance. And then talk me through from that point in. It was about, I'd say, about the 13th of March when mum became ill. She started just with a cough and a temperature, just generally lethargic. The cough continued and the temperature did for another few days. So obviously, because of the, the at the time, you had to isolate. So then mum and dad were both in, then in isolation. Dad had to ring the hospital because he was supposed to be doing some training, actually, at the end of that week. I think it was a Thursday that mum... Your dad was volunteering, is that right? He was volunteering at the hospital. He was on the front desk. Helping out again. Yeah, yeah. And he loved it. And everybody loved him. He he always used to wear his like you know his sweatshirts for children in need and things like that. And um, his Christmas sweatshirts, he'll be known. You know, he always had a Christmas jumper on or a Christmas t-shirt or any any occasion he had to be able to get dressed up. So yeah, he had to isolate then as well. As and at the time it was sort of you know oh you know we've got to stay in now like you know and your mum's not well and. So I was like, right, well, you know, it's the rules. They're the rules. So, you, you know, you're going to have to abide by those. So they were in isolation then. Mum's cough and temperature continued 
that week. Um, on the Tuesday, Wednesday, I just suggested that maybe she had a chest infection. I said, Mum, you need to really get hold of the doctors. Pleaded with her to ring them. She tried ringing them at the, that time. Nobody, you, you couldn't be seen by a doctor. Nobody wanted to go to A&E, did they, because of the fear as well of, um, of the COVID. So it was very hard to get to be seen. She was told just to take paracetamol, drink plenty of fluid. By the Wednesday night, Thursday, she still wasn't better. So I persuaded her to ring 111. I'd even tried to ring the GP and say, look, this is the situation. And obviously my dad is there as well. But it was just, we couldn't get any help. So we did persuade her to ring 111, which she did hang up eventually because she was taking that long to get through. But I insisted that she can't continued she finally did get through and they prescribed her some antibiotics so that was on the friday on the saturday morning i went round i picked a prescription up and i went round with the antibiotics knocked on the door they both mum and dad came to the door and they had a like a, a letterbox thing that near on the porchway so i just put the bag on there and stepped back and chatted then because you had to be two metres apart and, and just chatted. Mum was a bit breathless, but she'd come to the door. She was leaning on the radiator in the hall and she just, she was fed up basically because she did, she wasn't getting better. She was fed up. I think she was a bit down. I think she was worried as well. I think she was concerned that it was possibly COVID. My dad was, my dad, jolly. And he's going, oh, you know, like this to, you know, to my mum. And anyway, that was that. And then Saturday around tea time my sister called me Andrea and she said um have you spoken to mum so I said yeah well I saw her this morning I dropped the prescription off I'd also been and bought other stuff cough linked and all, all all of that stuff she said oh she sounds terrible she's like she's not she's not breathing very right so I said well I saw her this morning, let me video call her, because that we're obviously doing a lot of that at the time. I said, let me video call her and just see how she is from this morning. So I did do that, and it became quite apparent then that mum was really struggling. So to talk, she was having to hold her head back, get her breath, then talk, and then talk. Her face looked a little bit puffy as well to me. So I just said, mum, can you just... Do me a favour and try not to alarm her too much. I said, will you just check all your observations? Because obviously my nursing background and uh, my sister works in a GP surgery. They had a blood pressure monitor and you know, you know things like that. We didn't at that time have saturation monitors, which uh, we all have now. So I left it at that and then I rang my colleagues and just said, is there any chance I can get hold of a saturation monitor? I said, I need to just go and drop one off and for my mum and get to check and they were like well look if you need a saturation monitor you will be just ring 999 and the same response my sister got as well from her colleagues so I rang my mum back and I just said look you know I'm gonna have to ring an ambulance for you and she was like oh thanks very much I said mum you're not well um if somebody just comes out they'll tr- check you over and said and hopefully they'll be able to do something while you're at home and not have to go to hospital so I rang for an ambulance and then they had then in turn, because it, I wasn't with my mum, they had to then phone mum. So all that was going on in the background. Then I got a phone call to say, from mum to say that the ambulance were, had arrived and they were checking her over. So it was like, right, at least somebody's there. Then we got the phone call to say that she'd been taken to hospital and it was text messaging then. So it was text messages to mum, mum saying that, you know, they'd admitted her. She was on some oxygen. Can I bring her some things in? So pyjamas and that. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. She said, 
And then she had sent me another message saying, um, oh, well, there's um, a gentleman here and his wife's with him. You know, can you come in? And I said, well, I'm not coming in unless they put give me loads of, you know, PP masks and all that, you know, because at that time, this was just before lockdown. So it would have been the 20, 21st of March. So I'd also, I'd volunteered to help the local community. So I'd actually been around the previous week, putting my phone number through the houses and things to say, you know, if anybody needs to isolate or needed prescriptions or anything picking up, then please call me. And if I can, then I'd do that because obviously I was working at the hospital and I had masks and PPE. Father like daughter. Yeah, and my mum, yeah, yeah. And I offered as well to do mum's mum's cul-de-sac where they lived as well because obviously I was having to go there to see see to mum so I'd also volunteered to do that area as well so one of the ladies from the volunteering who like one of the 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 local groups near me had dropped some food off for me that evening to take to the hospital for my colleagues because obviously things were getting short toilet rolls bread thing you know the shelves were becoming bare weren't they so I said to my mum I've got a box of food here I've got to drop off so I'll drop that off and then I'll come around to A&E with your with your things so that's what I did picked her stuff up from my dad's which was that was upsetting in itself because I couldn't go in because that's what we were told to do I couldn't go into the house to go and help my dad you know go and get the stuff for mum so he'd gone up the stairs and he was struggling at that time because he had a bit of a dodgy hip which was getting him down as well he was so his mobility was he was struggling a little bit so he'd had to go up the stairs and then he had to come down and to go back up the stairs again and, and I was getting upset saying I'm sorry dad I'm, I'm sorry I can't come in I said but you know because he'd brought two pairs of pajama bottoms down instead of a pajama bo- top and a bottom you know and anyway we got there in the end and I went to the hospital I dropped off the box of food for my colleagues told them it said oh mum's been brought into A&E and they were like oh god hope everything's okay you know go you know let us know how she gets on were you fearing the worst at that point how were you feeling I had a feeling that's what it was from probably the Wednesday before I did have a just because it was coming up to a week and she still had a temperature but at that point we were thinking well if you are in hospital you've got bed you know got access to ventilators all that you're thinking then that's the safe place safest place for them to be so I went round to a they wouldn't let me in and I was frightened to go into a to myself to be to be quite fair I was had gloves on I had a mask on masks weren't in the community at that point then but obviously they were being brought in in work so uh, I did have a mask I had some gloves and I had an apron and I went to the to a and to the reception and I just said look my mum's been brought in by ambulance I've got all her items here I'd wrote a name on the bag you can't go through but I can take the bag so she took the bag off me and that that was that Saturday night I went to bed I put my phone on charge and it had actually died my phone so I plugged it in and usually I'll wait for a couple of minutes you know until it starts to get a bit of a charge and then turn the phone back on and I must have been that exhausted I just fell fell asleep so in the morning I jumped out of bed and realized not turn my phone back on and I was panicking trying to get the phone back on and as soon as I turned the phone on intensive care were on the phone they informed me then that mum had had to be intubated overnight it was then mother's day this was on the Sunday it's quite upsetting and I never forgive myself for not turning that phone on that night because mum had tried to she tried to call me to say what they were doing that they, they were ventilating it and just to tell us that she loved us and she tried to call my sister as well and my sister had a missed call um that's been very hard to live with but then I also think would that conversation been even worse 
had we have had that conversation on the phone at the time. So I don't know what's the better of the two, but I feel very guilty for that. Very, very guilty. So they'd intubated mum about three or four o'clock in the morning on the Sunday morning. They said that um, she had given consent for that to happen. They reassured me. They told me that there were plenty of people around the bed. They were making jests because they asked about phoning my dad and she told them not to phone my dad because he'd be really worried. And they were trying to pronounce his name. So Heffin and they were going Heffin, Heffin and Hevin, you know, different names. And she she was laughing around the bed with with the medics around the bed at the time. And it was all controlled and it was, you know, and that was that. So we were told we could pop in to see at that time. Um, but we would have to wear PPE. So because I already worked at the hospital and I was going to have to go in anyway, I made the decision that I would go. My brother made the decision. He were, He's a police officer. He also made the decision to come with me. And my other two sisters stayed at home at the time because they, they had risk factors for COVID. So my brother and I went. We had to wait for quite a while. And I can remember being behind double doors, the staff being quite scared. There was a lot of commotion about getting the PPE together. They had trolley outside with all the gloves, aprons, masks and things. We had to put a hair cap on, gown, mask, gloves, and we were stood outside. And at the time, I think, I don't think we realised the severity. And I remember actually taking a photograph of me and my brother in the, you know, the PPE. I, I just remember the look on some of the doctors' faces, the nurses, when you're peering through that little bit of window in the door and I just thought what am I going into and then I started to get a bit panicky and I said like are we doing the right thing do you know anyway we were allowed in but we couldn't actually go to the bed so we were stood just back at the nursing station uh, the nurse's trolley but we could see mum in the bed in front of us she looked very peaceful she looked much better than when we'd seen her on the video call but obviously she was on a ventilator and was in an induced coma so wasn't aware of us being there um, although I did shout across mum or, you know, look, rest now, you know, you're being sorted and we love you. And so it was, it, yeah, it was, it was hard. But then we were thinking she's got a bed, she's got a ventilator because there was talk of over 70s not being ventilated. So we just thought she's getting the, you know, she's getting the best care now. She was actually the second person in intensive care with COVID in the hospital at that time, came away. And then in the meantime, then we had to look after dad still because he was at home alone and that was really difficult How was um, dad at that point? I remember going to him that later that day and saying to dad oh look mum's um had to be put on a ventilator she's not awake they've had to put her to sleep to ventilate her to help her with her breathing and he just I remember him saying to me well I don't understand it he said like Val's got her phone and she hasn't rang me you know and I had to reiterate that and a couple of times in the week I had to reiterate the same. He was in denial really. I think so yeah so the weather was nice at that time so we'd go round and chat but he would be sort of like just peering his head through the door and that wasn't like my dad and it was quite upsetting because you could see mum and dad went everywhere together they did everything together and sometimes it was a love-hate relationship because my dad could be a bit awkward at times (laughs) Well, they did everything together and you could see it was, it had an effect on my dad. It was... um, Lost without her. Yeah, he was very lost. He had the dog there and they had a 
cockatiel as well so yeah so it was very it was hard you could see him getting more and more sort of like down as the week went on on the friday morning i called him and he just i said oh how are you dad you he said, I'm really sad. I, I, I'm just a bit down. So I said, oh, and I got upset on the phone. He was upset. I just said, look, I'm going to jump in the shower and I'll come straight over. As soon as I've had my shower, I'll come. I said, put the dog in the living room and then put a chair near the front door. I said, I'll come and sit and talk to you on the front step. So that was the plan. So I went, jumped in the shower. I'd not been out the shower that long. Just got dressed and the phone went. The video call, my brother was on, on my way around to see my dad. I've um, spoken to dad. He's not making any sense. So I said, well, I've spoken to him this morning and told him I was going to go round. Uh, he said, I'm on my way round there. Um, and I just said, look, call for an ambulance. He said, I have. I've phoned an ambulance. So we got round there, the three of us, myself, my brother and my younger sister. Bearing in mind, we were still being told that we had to keep two metres apart from everybody. So we couldn't, as siblings, we were taking it in turns. So if, like we were sat on the drive in our cars taking it in turns to go to the window to check on him. We'd got him to do his blood sugars because he was a diabetic. So that was fine. He told, he said he took his temperature and that was fine. So we were taking it in turns, going to the window, talking to him. And it's quite, I don't know, I don't know what the word is really, surreal or what. But I came across a, a WhatsApp message on my phone whilst I was sat on the phone, whilst one of the my other siblings were at the window scrolling through my phone. And it was from my dad's best friend's daughter. And my dad's best friend was actually my godfather. And we called him Uncle, Uncle Michael. His daughter, Sally, had sent me a message. And I hadn't, for some reason, hadn't hadn't opened this. So I just happened to open it. And it was like a little video. And it was drinks cans made to look like a choir singing the Welsh National Anthem. So I was just like, gosh, I can't, I can't understand. So I took it, the phone, to the window. And I said... Dad, Dad, look, look what Sally sent me. And I played him the Welsh National Anthem through the window. And I think that's probably the last time he heard his mother tongue. And he was just sort of sat smiling. He did look sad. He looked, he was sat in the sofa and he was just, he, the window was right next to his sofa where he was sat. And then anyway, we waited and we waited for the ambulance. They took three hours for the ambulance to come at that time. Bearing in mind, this was a week then after mum had been in. They were very busy. And then when they did come, it was the same ambulance crew that had picked my mum up the week before. So they knew what they were going into. It was like something out of ET, you know, when they come to the house with all the space gear on. They came in, they took my dad, wheeled him out in a wheelchair on oxygen. I did get the opportunity to speak to the ambulance crew, one of the ambulance crew, whilst the, the other one was sorting dad out. And they did tell me that they'd picked Bum up the week before. They knew, you know, they'd been in touch with the hospital to see how what was going on with her. And then they told me that when they picked my mum up, her oxygen saturation levels were 53%, which no normal person would walk around with sats of 53%. And she'd actually got up and had a shower that morning, come downstairs, had a breakfast. I'd get angry because when you're on a phone call and it was with 111, and obviously they didn't know these things at the time, but, you know, because she was still able to do that, they didn't take it as serious because she had got up and had a shower that morning, you know, but she'd had saturation, oxygen saturation levels of 53%. So it's what they now know is known as um, silent hypoxia, which was what COVID pneumonia did. So they took dad and his, and I asked them uh, what's dad's, 
saturation and they said 63%. So looking at my dad, you would not think he wasn't blue. He wasn't, he was a bit pale, but he wasn't, he didn't look cyanosed or anything like that. And I saw him on the trolley in the back of the ambulance and I just remember them saying, it's fine. You're going like, you, you'll probably, you might, you might see mom, like, you know, they'll, update you with mum and you know they'll take good care of you and but I knew when I saw him I knew that I wouldn't see my dad again when I saw him in the back of the ambulance I just knew because I just because we'd said if dad was to catch it we just knew that probably wouldn't you know it wouldn't recover and unfortunately on that Monday that's when he, he went so the Friday he was taken into hospital and yet when I rang up on the Saturday he'd been sat out of bed on high oxygen but sat out of bed had his porridge and then they put him back into bed because he was tired he was only 10 meters apart from your mum well no they were on a different ward to begin with right okay dad was on a and actually on a ward where a friend of mine worked she was the matron on there some of the staff actually knew dad from working at the hospital as well which was quite difficult Burly for those. And then on the Saturday night, we got the call about from a consultant. Well, I got the call from a consultant asking about DNR on my dad. And I said, I can't make this decision by myself. I need to speak to my siblings. So I had a video call with my siblings and we agreed that we would want him to be ventilated if it was his breathing. But if he had a cardiac arrest, then we didn't want any chest compressions or anything to be done because my, my, my dad would not have wanted that. So that was the decision then we made and they had to wait for the consultant to ring back again that night. And to make those decisions over the phone, I was already ringing all that week for my mum, making two to three phone calls a day because I knew how busy they were. Those phone calls were excruciating. It was very hard. So I was sort of the main point of contact and then relayed it to everybody. Oh, the nails all trying to ring up. So on the Saturday, sun, early hours of Sunday morning, I got a phone call. Um, that was, again, probably about two or three o'clock in the morning that Dad had had to be intubated. He was unresponsive at the time that they had to intubate him. And both of your parents were then in the same position? They were set, They were then both in a intensive care. So I did ask, can they be put near to each other? And they said, unfortunately, because in, intensive care was quite full then so in you know bearing in mind it had been a week from mum going in who was a second person in intensive care and yes there were other patients in intensive care not with covid by the time my dad got into the hospital into into intensive care it was full they had then had to open up theatres to um, have a separate intensive care and split the covid patients from the normal intensive care patients as such so then that was that was the to Sunday, he ended up on hemodialysis, and I knew, I just knew that this was not a good, you know, it wasn't a good, a uh, good thing. And then on the Monday morning, had the call that there wasn't anything else that they could do for Dad, and he wasn't responding to any of the treatment, and they had to withdraw care. So I'd asked for a minister to be with him because obviously we couldn't be there. I did have a discussion about going and putting full PPE on and going to be with dad. But as a family, we made a decision not to because we didn't want another one of us to be in intensive care. We didn't want another one of us to be in that situation. We were all very scared as a family. That week was just absolute hell. It was a living hell. How are you supposed to have conversations with doctors and nurses? How are they supposed to know who and how your parents are when they 
don't know that person before they were in intensive care. In that week, I'd started, I'd ordered some photographs to come so I could make sort of like a memory board, you know, for, to put around mum's bed um, so that they could see the type of people that they were, who they were talking to and washing and turning. And unfortunately, I never got that opportunity to 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 do that memory board. So dad passed away on the Monday. I can just remember screaming like I've never screamed. And then I just couldn't continue phoning the hospital. So my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, took over the phone calls and the updates for us. And I think for me, I just threw myself into organising the funeral. That was my, I think, just what I needed to do at the time. So I did that because at the there was talk of funerals being stopped, not being able to have families at funerals at that point. So we we, we organised a funeral and we needed it to be done quite quickly. So I did that. His funeral was on the 9th of April. I managed to be able to, in that time, Dad died on the 31st of March. And in that time, I'd spoken to his cousins who sent things to put in the coffin with him because we weren't able to go and sit the chapel of rest. We couldn't see him. So the last time I saw Dad was in the back of the ambulance. You couldn't do those memory-making things, you know. You couldn't talk to them in their ears. I'd actually asked them to put the phone next to, you know, my dad, but at the time they couldn't, that wasn't able, they weren't able to do that. iPads and things weren't around at that point. So yeah, it was really hard. So I just threw myself into sort of organising the funeral and trying to do it to the best of our ability because we were only allowed, a, a, a lot of places were only having 10. We were quite lucky we were allowed to have 16, which is a good job because there was enough of us that filled the, the crematorium then for that particular, just just as siblings and the children. So we did put things in, we wrote letters, the children wrote cards um, and put them in with, with my dad. We had the funeral. We weren't told we couldn't have flowers at the time, but thankfully the florist next door to the funeral parlour actually made us a little wreath and I just asked for them to have some daffodils in, which I've actually got here. I've kept them. So my sister ordered a Welsh flag so we had a Welsh flag over his uh, his coffin and this small small um, flower wreath we had the funeral we were told we couldn't carry the coffin but we did so probably we did we, we you know we weren't supposed to be touching the coffin but we actually did that's nice that you were able to do that yeah in the crematorium we actually had to even though even in our family groups we still had to sit on a chair two metres apart. So we couldn't sit next to, I couldn't sit next to my partner or the kids. My two young nephews who were at that time were, I think, nine and 12, had to sit on their own at their granddad's funeral. Well, Tide, he was known as Tide by the children, um, which is Welsh for granddad. We managed to get a minister and the minister that we got was actually a Welsh Presbyterian and he did, conducted some of the service for us in Welsh. Um, one of his, one of my dad's cousins actually sent a poem in Welsh and he wrote, he read that poem out in Welsh. And so for us, we did the best we could do at that time as a family. And bearing in mind, mum was still in intensive care and wasn't a part of it. It was very, very difficult. So we actually did film the whole funeral from the house and the service because we thought we were going to have to show mum what we did you know when she when she came out of in, in intensive care because obviously she was completely unaware of yeah in an induced coma the same so we had the funeral there was no wake you couldn't even you you couldn't even choose the coffin you couldn't do anything like that it was just basic there were no cars so we had to go in our own cars in your family group 
And sadly, you know, my youngest sister, Sarah, lived by herself. So we couldn't even pick her up in our car because we weren't allowed to do that. So she had to get a taxi to my dad's funeral and a taxi home. There was no wake. We stood in the car park after the cre- after the, the cremation, just in a big circle, talking about, you know, my dad. And then we all went our separate ways. It was just, looking back now, it's very surreal. Did it happen? I still think sometimes, are they still in that hospital? And it's three years down the line. You worked in that hospital and you said to I... me that, that you went back to the hospital, but you'd have sort of very surreal feelings and physical reaction. How, how was, tell me about that. And it eventually did go back. It took me. You were signed off work for five months. Yeah, because the day after my dad's funeral, my mum passed. So we then had another funeral to arrange. I had to have counselling from the health and wellbeing at work to just be able to get back into the building. So we start, I started, there was, they have two sites for this, for the hospital. So I actually started on the other site, having the talking therapy, and then we graduate gradually got to go to where myself and my dad worked. And I can remember having to walk through that main entrance. I could feel my heart racing. I became, I was sweaty, clammy. My head was rushing, felt like rushing. The fear and walking through those main doors and seeing the desk where my dad would usually be, it was very hard, very difficult. So then I managed that and then I had to then manage walking past intensive care because that was part of my job. I have to walk past there to go to the labs and things like that. It was very, very, very difficult, quite traumatic really. And I did eventually go back to work after five months And I threw myself back into it because my dad was very proud of me working there, proud of me being a nurse. I'd walk past the intensive care and look at those doors and think, are they in there? And sometimes I'd just want to go running through those doors to see them. And I knew that they were in there. We've had dreams, you know, my sister and myself, where they've come and they've said, you know, why have you left me there? You know, we've turned around and the, like my sister had one, she turned around and said, well, what, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be, you're supposed to be dead. You know, and they've said, well, what you've, why have you left me over there? You know, and it's, it's been very, very difficult, horrific. And then, unfortunately, I don't work there anymore now because I'm now medically retired. I uh, was diagnosed in 2021 with secondary breast cancer. But yeah, dad, mum and dad, they were both proud of all of us, really, you know, very proud. You said that you were diagnosed with secondary breast cancer, such a difficult thing to hear. Really have longed for your parents then at that point? It's been a really very difficult journey because in my primary diagnosis, mum and dad were there. They were there. They helped me after surgery. And yeah, that was very, very 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 difficult when I had emergency surgery um, I did have a photograph of them next to my bed which is uh, yeah I had that by me I had it you know so that they were with me and I talked about them a lot in the hospital that was the staff in in, in Walton where well it was Walton Euro and they were just fantastic absolutely they were my angels that time they held me up you know and for a long time was, you said that you know you couldn't listen to your dad singing that song no and I can remember getting into the car I was having to go for one of my CT my first CT scan after having treatment having the surgery having I'd had radiotherapy again and started on um, anti-cancer drugs which I'm still on so I'm on I'm classed as incurable now and treatable but incurable Um, so I'll never be cured but we'll just treat the treat 
treat it as we go along for as long as it uh, it can. And I remember getting into the car for my first CT scan um, following diagnosis and reversing the car out and then putting it into gear to drive. And as I started driving forward, I hadn't even put the CD on and the CD player started to play and it was my dad singing. So I just had a bit of a tear and I just said, thanks, dad. I know you're with me. And yeah, and thankfully it was good news and touch wood. Everything's been stable so far. So, but yeah, he was with me that day when I was going to, I just knew. And then every time I see my mum, every time I look in the mirror, yeah, very, very like my mum. You said that for a long time you couldn't play his songs, him singing. Yeah. What? That was the sort of surreal element. That was the first it? time then, yeah. That was the but first time. How did be... you feel if you, if you did play it or... I just couldn't it. bring myself even. We've got videos. Um, we did, my brother was very good technically and had done a beautiful video a collaboration for when it was my dad's. I think it was his 70th birthday and my mum's 70th birthday, done videos for them you know, put it all, photographs from when they were babies to when they met. And when they first passed, I watched it, but I still haven't watched it since. I probably could now. And when I did initially play that once, not long after Dad had passed, it hit me then because my son was really, really upset. Yeah, and it, it, it just the whole experience is surreal because under normal circumstances, we would have been able to say goodbye properly. On both the funerals, they just would have been, the crematorium would have been overflowing, overflowing with people. We would have had a wake. We still haven't had a wake. We still haven't had that, you know, that celebration of life, if you like, where you can talk with friends, with family about them as people. We've not had any of that. It's been very, very hard. I've still got them here now with me. I've got um, mum and dad's ashes and we still, you know, we still haven't managed to be able to. Your resilience is incredible. I mean, to lay your dad to rest and then on the same day get a call that your mum had passed. That was the following morning. Yeah, they um, we had the funeral and then the following morning I had a call to say there wasn't anything more that they could do with the mum. And I just remember dropping the phone, blood curdling screams. A son come, came running in, um, held me on the bed whilst uh, my partner and his dad took the phone and then he had to make the calls to my brother and my two sisters. It was just, it was horrendous. You wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy. It was just horrific. And then it was, you were sat waiting then when the, the decision had been made for them to withdraw care, then waiting again for the call to say that she'd gone. And... I mean, looking back now, we say, you know, we try to make light of it and we try to make reason with it that neither of them knew that each other had passed. I was just going um, to say, do you take solace from that? We have to because it would just it just eats you up. So we just, we take, you know, that's the one bit that we do try and take away. Yes, my dad knew my mum was there. And we always said, oh, we, dad, mum was waiting for dad to have his day because at his funeral, the, the streets were lined. We took the funeral cortege past the hospital and because really to pay respects because mum was there. So we'd asked, would they go around the hospital, which they did. And then it was put on the community, the staff newsletter that the my dad had obviously had passed and that the funeral cortege passed in the hospital on the, on the day of the funeral. And when we went past, there was just hundreds of people out there, staff and the chief exec everybody lined lined the streets the front and the back of the hospital um and clapped 
we've got video of you know videos of that and you can just hear he's sobbing but the clapping you know the clapping the whole way through was just unbelievable we didn't expect that at all and then a week later um, at my mum's funeral you know well 10 days after mum had passed mum's funeral it was the same friends family lined you know the the procession the route to the crematorium to pay respects yeah and under normal circumstances as I say it would have been huge the funerals would have been huge and the wake the, the celebration of life that we would have had would be we'd always talked about that actually as a family you know saying you know with my dad you know oh well, we'll have you playing at your own funeral and that's what he wanted as well and we did do that we did that for him um you know he he sang at his own funeral you know we tried to do the best we could at that time with it was just yeah it's very surreal I think the hardest part is not being with them in the hospital not being not saying that goodbye not being able to hold a hand and tell them that we loved them no your loss is just colossal uh, enormously painful what has helped you to get through I really don't know I think knowing the parents that my they, they were that brought us up with love an abundance of love an abundance of care how they were to other people, not just their family. They'd have neighbours round at Christmas, you know, for dinner. They'd invite elderly neighbours. And yeah. I can remember plenty of times being sat round our Christmas dinner table with a couple of elderly neighbours that they'd, you know, take and bring in because they didn't want them to be there themselves at Christmas. And they were just so caring, you know, run people around, give lifts, um, look after people. And I think when you you brought up with that that's it's precious you know very precious and it helps it helps you to so to move on I had to throw myself back into work unfortunately that only was for another year because then I had my diagnosis but I think then that I don't know whether it was that was sent I don't, I don't, I don't know but um I have since then thrown myself into I mean I got heavily involved in the Yellow Hearts group which is um, a more memorial group for those who've lost loved ones to Covid that was set up by um, the Gompertz family on Facebook and I became very heavily involved in that initially and that helped me get through helped you know raise an awareness of those that have been lost to Covid the rules and the regulations around at the time, what people had missed out on, trying to explain to people the severity severity of it all. And then um, I've now gone into um, throwing myself into helping other people with secondary breast cancer because that's not talked a lot, a lot about either. So, yeah, I think that is probably, I don't know, but it's, it's given me that other focus, really. Yeah, there's three years have, have passed now, and you do, you do move on. But the, the first 12 months, it was it was hell, yeah. You prescribed with uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, is that correct? Yeah. I think just with everything that's gone on the past couple of years, my parents and my own, my own uh, diagnosis as well it's caused yeah quite a lot of trauma uh, and it's affected the family quite a lot it's affected the children quite a lot even my nephew my sister's lad he's he's very very good with his poems and um he's wrote some beautiful poems he did he wrote poems for for mum and dad for their funerals and actually got up and and read them and he wrote a poem for me when I was actually in hospital the day he sent it to me the night before I was due to come home and I can remember sitting in that hospital bed sobbing 
But yeah, I think as a family, the love that mum and dad have outpoured to us all and they've brought us up the way that we are, I think. We just all want to do them proud. What What is their legacy? Family. And we're still, we are still quite close, but we do miss that hub, you know, that central hub. And it's been hard because now I'm sort of the head of the family and the head of the family is not in the best at the minute, you know, which also has had an effect on my siblings as well having to deal with mum and dad and now with myself as well so I have huge guilt I do have huge guilt but yeah so I just try and you know live because that's what my mum and dad did they lived they lived every minute of their they had they didn't have two pennies to rub together they had nothing you know but they had each other and they had us that's all that mattered to them was family and family was everything to them my mum and dad were only children so having us that was you know that they were just so proud, but they were also very close to their cousins as well, who I keep in touch with as well now. It was, you know, they were just, yeah, family. I think their legacy is family and love is what they've, you know, they've left to us. Do you have a message for anyone who still has their parents in their life or a mom or a dad? What message would you give to them, given what you've been through and what you've lost? These wonderful people. Spend as much time as you can with them. Tell them every day that you love them take care of them our parents knew that we loved them you know but to have them snatched away like that to become an orphan some people i've heard some people moan oh you know oh my mum's done this and i was just and yeah i did it myself in you know in the in the past but i think they need to cherish that time that they've got because none of our time is you know we don't know none of us know how much time we have but i would just say yeah look out look after them cherish the time make the memories take those photographs and make sure that you're on those photographs you know that's one of the things we've we struggled with you know trying to find photographs of you know with us with both mum and dad on or you know so i'm quite conscious now of doing that with my children as you know being included in those photographs so that they've got those memories as well because a lot of the time you tend to be behind the camera and just just love be kind and love okay nikki thank you so much you've been amazingly strong um not only to to live that but then to relate it here and i don't doubt that you know what you've spoken about will help other people so i think you know you can take heart from that there is life and there's a life to live i think i've been sent a bit more of a wake-up call than anybody else but there is a life go out there live your life be kind to people love people enjoy experiences enjoy memories enjoy just walking in nature you know getting outside look at the trees look up thank you nikki take care thank you thanks karen thanks so much for listening Please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so via the show notes. The price of a coffee would be fantastic. And also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at RiceKMC and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to participate, you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website, www.karen-rice.com. Good luck.